coming here from Eckersley. Gibson swings and a fly ball to deep right field. This is going to be a home run. Unbelievable. A home run for Gibson. And the Dodgers have won the game. Five to four. I don't believe what I just saw. I don't believe what I just saw. Is this really happening, Bill? It is happening, and they've got to help him home. The third base coach, Joe Montecarlo, had to give him a little push, and all the Dodgers are around home plate. I don't believe what I just saw. One of the most remarkable finishes to any World Series game. A one-handed home run by Kirk Gibson, and the Dodgers have won it. Konnichiwa, Bob Swore, and good night, mate, to my international seam heads out there. All my uh, Canadian, American, UK listeners, what is up? It's your boy, half man, half podcast machine. Back from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network, Jake the Snake Robinson, back in the Captain Kirk chair, shields down, photons up. 
Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio show that I call Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. want to welcome everyone in this week as the train continues to roll on. Six months in, never missed a week. And that's how we roll here at our Backwards K-Pod. Tuesdays, every week, we're up in this joint telling the stories of baseball, past and present. And Backwards K-Pod is uh, available on all podcast platforms, wherever you listen to your pods, Google Play, iHeart, Podbean, Stitcher, etc., etc. I'm all tangled up in the web, brah. If you're on Apple or Spotify, uh, please hook a brother, good brother up with five stars and review me as you see fit. You can find the show on Twitter at back underscore K underscore podcast. I'm also on Facebook and YouTube under the Let's Talk Baseball podcast banner. And you can find all my shows in my vault of archives at diamondsnakejake.podbean.com. I got a lot of positive feedback on last week's uh, harrowing journey of LeVon and El Duque um, on their little journey to the United States. I got one from Ozzy from Puerto Rico. Sent a message that, Jake, you've set the bar so high and you continue to reach your standards every week. Kyle Rickett Jr. was amazing, and I'm listening to the Hernandez brothers right now. Great stuff. Thank you, Ozzy, for uh, spreading spreading the Backwards K pod gospel to your beautiful island of Puerto Rico. Uh, Randy in Sioux, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, he wrote me in, do you think anyone will ever be done, do you think ever, anything will ever be done to help talent reach America from Cuba in a safer manner? than these defections and escapes. And that's a great question, Randy, in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. It looks like there was uh, some rays of sunlight on that horizon during the Obama administration, and then the Trump administration came in and brought all that goodwill negotiations back. And honestly, I haven't heard any word out of the current administration about it. Truth is, uh, we got a two-party system that's broke right now in this country, in my opinion, so... You know, I don't see anything positive on that front in the near future, quite honestly. And uh, thank you for the question, Randy. And thanks for listening. Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Uh, Who would have thunk it? Never been there. Sounds beautiful, man. So, yeah, if you want to ask the show a question, drop a comment. You can email the show at backwardskpod at gmail.com. And I think that's about everything. Please remember to share, like, subscribe, and download. Keep the content free. And with that, I'm going to get right after it. Let's dig into this week's topic, Dodger Stadium at Chavez Ravine. And I'm going to keep it 100 with you guys. I, I've never been to Dodger Stadium. My knowledge of it was very limited to basically the little nuggets of fact that Vince Scully used to speak about on his broadcast. But really, other than that, I know very little. Well, I knew very little about the West Coast Sports Palace going into this. And I love topics like that. I kind of like to just jump in these rabbit holes of history and who the hell knows what you come up with, quite honestly. However, there is like this uh, deep, deep, dark, deep-seated underbelly of time that lives under that stadium's very foundation. A prologue to the beginning of Los Angeles Dodgers baseball that I kind of feel like it's been swept under the proverbial rug of history and one that 
I would surely be remiss to ignore if I'm going to tell the story of Dodger Stadium. And some of you may remember in the uh, 1982 hit movie, horror movie, Poltergeist, a cookie-cutter community is built over an old cemetery. And the sins of the past, they, they come to Revelation, and the audience figures out that that community probably should have never been built in the first, first place. And alas, in many respects, Dodger Stadium, for me, now kind of has that feel and story arc for me after the research. And, I, and I'll tell you what happened. In order for Dodger Stadium to be built, the city of Los Angeles expelled over 1,800 Mexican-American families from their homes, livelihoods, and community. And by doing so, they destroyed three vibrant communities. Now, Chavez Ravine is is a huge canyon and a series and a network of hills and gullies in Elysian Park. It's named after Julian Chavez, a 19th century city councilman who owned land along the L.A. River. And the land was originally used as the city's first Jewish cemetery. Now, in the early 1900s, three neighborhoods arose in the hills. Palo Verde, La Loma, and Bishop. And many Mexican-Americans who were forbidden from buying property due to housing discrimination in the early 1900s, so they moved to Cervez Ravine. They built homes, corner stores, gas stations, restaurants. They raised chickens, goats, pigs. They had their own butcher, barber shops. And by 1913, more than 250 Mexican-American families had made the ravine their home. Mexican immigrants came to L.A. to work in agriculture, construction. Most of the homes were built by their original owners on plots of land that they legally obtained. They paid taxes. Their kids went to schools. And they watched as the neighborhood and their children grew around them. Now, the neighborhood, it didn't have paved roads, street lights, or electricity in those humble beginnings. On Saturday nights, the teenagers like to stand around with trash cans and watch the city down below. And the city of Los Angeles, at this time, is beginning to boom. City Hall was built in 1928. The police department opened an LAPD training academy in Chavez Ravine. And the police said, were good. You know, they, they, they earned the trust of the community. They went out. They sponsored local sports teams. They had, like, these ice cream socials and sock hops. So, you know, they're trying to be good cops, you know, these L.A. cops here. The neighborhood, it, it, it even added, like, a Roman Catholic church. It had a bilingual newspaper. And it was a tight-knit community. Everybody was always looking out for one another. Well, during the Depression, anti-immigration, whenever, you know, especially whenever there's, you know, a money crisis in this country, anti-immigration reared her ugly American head. And look, I'm just letting you know that I, we don't whitewash history here at Backwards K-Pop. I give it to you straight. All of our accomplishments and warts as a country. So, 
If you're one who can't handle the realities of American history, you might want to check out here. I keep it real deal Holyfield around this piece. I feel like if you don't know your past, you're doomed to repeat. And this story has a lot of parallels with what has been going on around here for the almost, you know, the last decade. So, where was I? Okay. During the Depression, the Mexicans were blamed for stealing American jobs and taking government aid. Sound familiar? Groups like the American Legions and veterans of foreign wars demanded the deportation of these immigrants. The city Gestapo, <coughs> er, my bad, uh, city officials, they went door to door demanding citizenship papers. And hundreds of thousands of people were repatriated back to Mexico, Mexico, including natural-born U.S. citizens. In 1937, Congress allotted funds for low-income housing. And a guy named Frank Wilkinson, he began looking to acquire land to construct a 10,000-unit public housing project to be called Elysian Park Heights. Local real estate developers, they viewed the project as like a socialist plot to reduce property value throughout the city. And by 1940, L.A. had swelled to around 1.5 million people. America was entering World War II, and the city was on edge. The U.S. Navy had built an armory in Chavez Ravine, and many of the mostly white naval recruits, they didn't like the cocky young Mexican youths walking around the gates in their pompadours and zoot suits. In June of 1943, the infamous zoot suit wars spill into the downtown and East L.A. streets when white sailors, the LAPD, and American civilians began clubbing and beating Mexicans. They stripped the kids of their clothes, they pissed all over their zoot suits, burning them all over the streets of L.A. And for five days, these racist bigots had their way with violence, and then, wouldn't you know it, the LAPD, true to their fucking history, arrested the victims for disturbing the peace. Many of you, many of you may have never heard of the Zoot Suit Wars, and if not, you should read up on it. Stories like that... And the Tulsa race riots, they're, they're crimes against humanity that certain people would like to brush away or just, you know, maybe just sit in their own filthy ignorance about it and pretend it never happened. But they are stories that need to be told, retold, taught, and never forgotten. So President Harry Truman, he signs the Federal Housing Act of 1949 as a part of this herbal renewal plan. On July 24th, 1950, the residents of La Loma, Palo Verde, and Bishop receive a letter from the Housing Authority of Los Angeles informing them that Public Housing Authority of Los Angeles was going to be building a housing development on their location. They were informed that the housing officials would be inspecting their houses to estimate the value, and they would give all the assistance possible to relocation if they needed it. And they also offered the opportunity to move into the new Elysian Park project when it's completed. Well, that was just a a flat-out lie. 
the city council was basically using eminent domain to evict residents. And I'm using quotation bunny fingers right now when I say they evicted them for the public good. And, you know, even though these, like, shifty cockroaches, they said they could come back and be part of their uh, stacking poor people on top of poor people project here, they forgot to mention the small print that prohibited both homeowners and non-citizens from claiming a new unit, which pretty much disqualified everyone in the three hoods. The Federal Housing Act specified that neighbors... uh, Well, the neighborhood, it couldn't be raised unless it was deemed a slum. Excuse me. And basically, there was nothing that anyone could say that that would make anyone consider these three neighborhood slums. The, The street infrastructure was poor, but that's just because the city engineers and the council, they never gave a shit. Other than the roads, these were pretty vibrant neighborhoods. And... Some residents, they did take the $17,500 payoff, and they sold their homes, and, and, but most of them protested. These were homeowners. They didn't want to rent. They certainly didn't want to live in public housing. They attended these planning commission meetings, and they began to picket City Hall. And basically, the planning commission, they ignored the protesters, and they authorized the demolition of the three communities. A local judge reduced home values from seventeen five to ten fifty for those who didn't sell in the beginning. Properties were condemned and the bulldozers came into Shavaz Chavez Ravine. And at this time the LA Times began printing propaganda articles warning that public housing would increase juvenile delinquency. In 1951, the city council voted down the public housing deal, as did the Los Angeles voters. The housing authority argued that since they already had a contract with the federal government, the project could move forward. But when it was revealed that Frank Wilkinson and housing authority architect Richard Neustra were both communist party members, support for public housing, it withered away. And, you know, what country do I live in? That's crazy. A group called uh, Citizens Against Socialist Housing, CASH, they claimed that public housing was a communist plot to destroy America. (laughs) Wilkinson was fired. And the city elected new mayor, Norris Polson, in 1953. And his first action was to cancel the Elysian Park Heights housing project. He renegotiated a deal with the United States government to buy back Chavez Ravine for, again, money air quotation, the public good. But by this time, you know, there was only about a dozen families remain who were steadfastly remaining in their homes. Maybe their patience was about to win out and they would be given a reprieve since the housing project was dead. Unfortunately, their fate was being determined 3,000 miles away 
in Brooklyn, New York. Walter O'Malley, owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers, he wanted a stadium. Evans Field had a severe parking problem. I think it sat like 40,000 people, but they only had enough for like parking for like 700 cars. I mean, it was bad. And, you know, Evans was beginning to show her age. He, he was in discussion with civic leaders for a geodesic dome stadium. And I never really knew what that was until I saw one. And you should probably look it up if you don't know either. But, I mean, this is, Walter O'Malley is a man certainly ahead of his time. If he could have pulled that dome structure off. I mean, the only thing that he lacks for this vision of this geodesic dome stadium was land. Robert Moses, a New York City master builder of his day, he recommended building a publicly financed stadium in Queens at the site of the World's Fair, and then the Dodgers could rent the ballpark from the city. But O'Malley didn't like that. He, he didn't want to rent the stadium from anybody. He had ambitions of owning his own stadium outright. Meanwhile, back in L.A., the city had two minor league teams, the Los Angeles Angels and the Hollywood Stars. City officials believe that in order for L.A. to be taken seriously as a major metropolitan, Politan, uh, metropolis, they needed a professional baseball team, and the Dodgers fit the bill. In September of 1955, Roz Wyman and Ed Royball from the LA Council they flew to Brooklyn to meet Mr. Malley. The time was uh, the timing wasn't very good as the Dodgers were finally able to beat their hated rival Yankees in the World Series for the for the first time. So the appointment was rescheduled. A few months later, Los Angeles County Supervisor Kenneth Hahn, he pitches the Chavez Ravine plot to O'Malley. The location had 350 acres, freeway access, and it was close to downtown, it was close to downtown L.A. And Walter was intrigued. He visited L.A., he took a helicopter tour of the ravine. And he and Mayor, Mayor Polson, they would pretty much meet up later on in the day and begin working out that general outline of that deal. And O'Malley would buy the minor league team Angels and the South Los Angeles Stadium. And then he would trade the property in exchange for the land that made up for the neighborhoods of La Loma, Bishop, and Palo Verde. It's not really clear whether O'Malley was aware of the residential holdouts or the illegal land grab the city perpetrated on the citizens of Chavez Ravine. And I want to make myself clear when I say this. The Dodgers didn't force anyone out. This was all a this was all as a result of a failed public housing development that was you know, proposed to be built, and basically they they deemed this these three neighborhoods as slums, which they were not slums. They were single homes that were owned by the public by the uh, the people that lived there. They had businesses, education, uh, doctor facility, you know, facilities for medical care. You know, it was they were three thriving neighborhoods. They deemed them as slums. They were supposed to build these. Uh, Project buildings never happened. The Dodgers came in and got the remaining property. They came in pretty much swooped in after the deal went bad. 
So the Dodgers didn't push it went out. They just kind of got lucky in the fact that, you know, we pretty much wiped out these three neighborhoods, and now there's a bunch of land here. <laughs> that's, the, you know, that's the shame of it. So O'Malley, he's got his deal in hand with the mayor, and he's, he's out. Brooklyn was heartbroken. L.A. was overjoyed. Now, the only thing left to do is to get rid of these last dozen Mexican-American homeowners from that future stadium site. The residents there, they filed a lawsuit demanding the courts to reverse the property condemnation uh, since the housing project deal was canceled. And the suit lasted two years during which these families remained in their homes. In 1958, the Dodgers arrived in the City of Angels, and as O'Malley greeted future Dodger fans at the airport, he is actually served with a summons from the residents of Chavez Ravine. The residents there told the press that a New York businessman was basically being given a sweetheart deal at the expense of L.A. taxpayers. And the protesters, they actually, uh, they actually garnered enough sig- signatures to place the issue on a ballot. On July 14th, the court ruled that the Dodgers land purchase was illegal, since it didn't conform to the public purposes clause. Again, bunny ears. The Dodgers and their mighty lawyers, they fought it all the way to the California Supreme Court, and they won it there. Now, Abrana and Manny Archiga, they were the last family. They remained in their Palo Verde home in early 1959. Their legal appeals were exhausted. They were given 60 days to leave the property. It had been 40 years since they built this home with their own hands. And they're paying taxes like good citizens should. They wrote a letter to the Daily Mirror stating... I haven't anything against the Dodgers, but if they want my land, they should make a fair and reasonable offer for it. On May 8th, 1959, sheriff vehicles arrived with moving vans and a bulldozer to take out the last remaining homes. The Archigas, they locked themselves in their house and they nailed the front door shut with, you know, people out front of their house, the media, I mean, it's a madhouse. A deputy comes, he kicks down the door, the windows were smashed, you know, you got babies and women crying and protesting, and the men, they pretty much barge inside, cut the phone lines and remove furniture, while reporters pretty much stood out in the front of the yard snapping photos. And it took four hours to bring the daughter out kicking and screaming bloody murder. They arrested her for disturbing the peace. (laughs) She's disturbing the peace. Gotcha. As the Archigas departed the house, a bulldozer knocked it off its foundation, killed several chickens. That's nice. The destruction took about 10 minutes, and all Manny and his wife could do was watch in horror. Newspapers ran articles about the U.S. government running amok. They were offered lodging at a public housing complex, and they refused. They were homeowners. They didn't want to live in the projects. The Archigas insisted on the original 17.5 estimate, but the city attorney kept saying, nope, it's 10.5 now, that's non-negotiable. And the family moved into a donated trailer. 
the Palo, Palo Verde neighborhood was demolished, trees uprooted. Some of the homes were uh, lifted by jacks and used by the fire department as training houses to fight fires. And others were actually shipped to Universal Studios to be used on the set for the hit movie To Kill a Mockingbird. Manny died in 1971, his wife the following year at the age of 75, the site of the old house. It lies somewhere beneath Dodger Stadium parking lot, just north of Union 76 gas station. And it left a, you know, a little sidebar here. It left a, a, uh, a bad taste in a lot of Mexican, Mexican-American fans. They were not Dodger fans for the longest time because of the history of that stadium. And again, I, I say to you that it really wasn't the Dodgers' fault, but the whole backstory of it all and how they became, you know, how it became what it became. And really, it would take Fernando Mania to win a lot of Mexicans back into the arms of the Dodgers. True story. And there will be a pod, of course, about Fernando Mania one day. As for the site of Dodger Stadium now, it's, it's 34 degrees, 4.25 inches north by 118 degrees, 14 feet, 24 inches west of Los Angeles, California. It is the third oldest stadium currently in the major leagues behind only Fenway and Wrigley. And it is the oldest still functioning baseball stadium west of the Mississippi River. And I've done shows on both Fenway and Wrigley. If you haven't heard those shows yet, uh, you got to go to diamondsnakejake.podbean.com and check those out. I love doing these stadium shows. I, I learned so much doing these shows. Now, even though Dodger Stadium is the third oldest park, it is a magnificent jewel of a ballpark. It's had numerous renovation projects and facelifts throughout the years, so the old bird, she still maintains her, her charm here. And I want to be very clear with you here. They literally moved mountains, mountains, to construct Dodger Stadium as, you know, it is truly a marvel of engineering. Between 1959 and 1962, an army of construction workers shifted 8 million cubic yards of earth and rock in the hills above L.A., transforming the rugged terrain known as Chavez Ravine. The project broke ground September 19, 1959, and was overseen by O'Malley and principal architect Emil Prager. It was, for the most part, a straightforward project of muscle, machinery, and solutions-oriented execution. The biggest challenge, of course, was manipulating the site's topography, steep slopes, perilous terrain, deep ravines. It had long sheltered these Elysian hills, but this rough terrain was no match for the modern technology of its day. In a span of a little less than 31 months, 19 giant earth movers had relocated over 8 million cubic yards of earth, flattening hills, filling in gullies across the 350-acre site. 
at its highest point. They amputated the peak and carved an amphitheater into the mountains. And this would serve as the ballpark's foundation. The landform known as Chavez Ravine, it remained intact and Stadium Way now runs through it today. So, you pick it up what I'm laying down here. They cut this rock up, shaped it into an amphitheater, and beaches, uh, benches were cut into the sloping floor to serve as like, you know, like a, like a skeleton to, to support the stadium foundation and pedestal. And if you get a chance, you should really Google it. It's amazing. Uh, to control the erosion, a two-inch thick concrete was sprayed on the area. The 124-foot-high grandstand has three major cantilevered tiers built on 78 precast beds. And building this huge, you know, 124-foot-high grandstand was just as challenging as grading the surface. Some 40,000 cubic yards of concrete, including 78 precast frames, some of these which weighed up to 28 tons, and 13 million pounds of reinforced steel went into the structure. Now, because these precast pieces were too big to haul by truck, a six-acre casting yard was built on the site. And to assemble the pieces, the, con- the uh, contractors imported a $150,000 crane from Germany, which at the time was the largest crane ever used in North America. The grandstand's cantilevered design, it meant that each spectator enjoyed an unobstructed view of the action. A departure from like the older jewel box stadiums that we talked about before, like Fenway and Wrigley. You know, these stadiums have, you know, support structures that sit between fans and the field. So this cantilevered uh, style was, was way, way ahead of its time. Almost all stadiums use the cantilevered design now. And because of the fact that Dodger Stadium is built literally into the hillside, The grandstand offered easy access from each of its four tiers to their terrace parking lots behind it. This minimized the need for long climbs up stairways. Remember, folks, this is like on top of a mountain hill. So, to avoid all that climbing, the engineers designed these parking lots. So, in theory, you can pull your car to the level where your seats are at. And it's not in theory, it's for real. You park, you walk to your seats, and it's on the same level. In fact, Mr. O'Malley originally considered having like drive-in sections where you could literally sit in your car and enjoy a, do- a Dodger dog and the game, but you know they later scrapped that idea. Now, I'm going to be honest. During my research, one of the few complaints about Dodger Stadium is the traffic in and out of the stadium, and I'll hit on that in a little bit. And I'll see if I can't offer some secrets to uh, beating that traffic situation that is Dodger Stadium. And Dodger Stadium was the first 100% privately funded Major League Stadium to be built since Yankee Stadium back in 1923. And it would be the last one built until Oracle Park in San Francisco opened in 2000. The cost of construction on Dodger Stadium was $23 million, which is about $206 million in the 2022 economy.
the tops of many of these ridges in Chavez, they were removed and the soil was used to fill in sulfur and cemetery ravines. And that was done to provide like these level surfaces for not only the stadium, but the massive parking lots on different levels of the hillside. In fact, a local elementary school in the former neighborhood of Palo Verde that I mentioned earlier was simply buried rather than raised, and it now sits beneath the parking lot northwest of third base. From 1962 to 1965, the Los Angeles Angels shared the ballpark, but the Angels refused to refer to her as Dodger Stadium, instead calling her Chavez Ravine Stadium. After the Angels departed, it began to be called officially Dodger Stadium at Chavez Ravine. Now, the first game at Dodger Stadium was April 10, 1962. Renowned tenor Alma Pedroza sang the national anthem. Kay O'Malley, Walter's wife, threw out the first pitch to catcher Johnny Ros- uh, Roseboro. Johnny Padres was that opening day pitcher as they took on the defending NL champion Cincinnati Reds. And unfortunately for the Dodgers, Red slugger Wally Post dropped a three-run dong in a seventh, breaking a tie and propelling the Redlegs to a 6-3 victory. And 2009, Dodger Stadium was given its own zip code. 90090. There are two things that O'Malley loved about the Chavez Ravine site. Number one, he envisioned a bevy of freeway systems leading in and out of the stadium. And number two, he wanted Hollywood stars to be part of the brand new West Coast spectacle. He also wanted the Hollywood sign to be visible from the stadium, which it is if you are sitting up a tank on a clear day. And when they began the excavations, the elevations originally ran from 400 to 700 feet above sea level. And it became the first stadium in history to be built on different levels connecting with adjacent parking lots. And in fact, Dodger Stadium is considered a pitcher's park. Uh, really, it's, it's quite moderate. Actually, uh, during the day, I think it plays a little farther. The air is a little thinner. But at night, uh, they are next to that Pacific Ocean, and the air does become really thick. And balls that you thought were, would have been home runs, probably in the daytime, fall a little short at night. In 1962, the most expensive seat in Dodger Stadium was $5.50. Which is the same as $48.39 in the 2022 economy. $5 is almost worth 50 bucks. Here in 2022, by the way, the Dodgers have the most expensive average baseball ticket price in the league of $115. In the 2017 World Series, tickets range from $7,500 to $25,000. The concept of the stadium was inspired originally by Disneyland. Walter O'Malley and Walt Disney, they had become friends, uh, friendly tycoons, and O'Malley fell in love with the concept of Disneyland. He loved its futuristic look, and he instructed his architect, Emil Prager, to build him something like that. 
And Mr. O'Malley even sent his Dodgers personnel to tour Disneyland, and he told them, Disney is the model. Now, because of the friendship between O'Malley and Disney, the Dodgers are one of the few organizations in the world who are allowed to use the famous Disney font and their character likenesses. And if you go to your Google machine, you'll, you'll see what I mean. Outside of Gate A at 1000 Vince Scully Way, there is a the word welcome in the Disney font. And there's a picture of Minnie Mouse on that board. And honestly... I, I never knew that. That's pretty cool. I, I, I know that the Oregon Ducks, they have a relationship with Disney as well, and they're allowed to use uh, the Donald Duck likeness. So that's pretty interesting stuff to me. Now, one thing I always notice about Dodger Stadium, whenever I see it on TV, and that's the various colors of the seats. And I never understood it because they don't match, right? But... They are all distinctive in California flavor, and they are those colors for a reason. The lower level seats are yellow, and that represents the sun. The next level up, the lower seats are orange, and they represent the sandy beaches of SoCal. The next level up, the reserved seats are colored sea foam green, which is a nod to the trees and the grassy mountains of the California range. And... The upper deck is blue, or blue heaven, as uh, Tom Latorta would call it. And that's where the ocean meets the sky, baby. Dodger Stadium is 100% symmetrical. And I mean 100%. It has the same pavilions in the outfield on both sides of the, of the diamond with the exact same sign placements and foul poles. You could literally take Dodger Stadium and fold it in half and it would totally match up. What you see in left field is exactly the same thing in right field. Right field and left field, they have a home run distance of 330 feet, or 101 meters for my international uh, metric system using CMEDS, and center field is 400 feet, or 122 meters away from home plate. And one little quirky piece of history that I found interesting. The high five was invented at Dodger Stadium. In 1977, Steve Garvey, Ron Say, Reggie Smith, they all belted 30 home runs that year. Well, Dusty Baker is sitting at 29 until the very last game of the year. And after finally dropping that glorious dong, Dusty touched home plate, and rookie Glenn Burke was standing there with his arm extended in the air. And Dusty, <laughs> not knowing really what to do, he just reached up and he slapped the rookie's hand for the first ever high five. Garvey, Say, Smith, and Baker became the first quartet of 30 homer dudes on the same team. And the high five became a major marketing promotion for the Dodgers in the playoffs. And it's part of the baseball lexicon now. It's really part of the sports world now. In 1962, the Dodgers... Buried a time capsule full of memorabilia and swag from the 1959 World Series, as well as the inaugural 1962 opening day of the ballpark. The time capsule is located in the upper deck behind a metal plaque. And speaking of plaques, there's a few of them throughout the stadium commemorating some of the longest home runs in the stadium history. And these ones are kind of outside the stadium. The first one 
was laid after August 5th, 1969, a blast off the bat of Willie Stargell, a titanic 507-foot bomb over the right field pavilion. It still stands today as the longest home run in Dodgers Stadium history. Not to be outdone, Stargell comes back in 1973, and it's a 470-foot bomb that again cleared the right field pavilion. And then, 24 years later, Mike Piazza became the only Dodger to hit out. A 478-foot blast against the Rockies that cleared the left field pavilion. Mark McGuire, he hit a 483-foot bomb in 1999 over the left center field pavilion. And most recently, in 2015, when John Carlos Stanton, while playing for the Fish, launched a 475-foot missile over the left field pavilion. All those hits have been marked with plaques. There have been 13 no-hitters thrown at Dodger Stadium. The first one was by Bo Belinsky of the Angels. And it wasn't even in a game versus the Dodgers. Now remember, I told you, the Angels and the Dodgers, they shared the crib from 62 to 65. And Belinsky would toss the stadium's first no-hitter versus the Orioles on May 5th, 1962. The last one, uh, by the way, was uh, Clayton Kershaw in 2014. The only perfect game thrown in the stadium was Sandy Koufax and a one nothing victory over the Cubs on September 9th. 1965. Of their seven world titles, the only World Series title clinched on their home field for the Dodgers was back in 1963 when they swept the mighty Yankees. Kobach pitches and Howard drives the ball to deep short. Wills makes a fine play on the ball. Then he gets off a quick throw to second base. It's in the dirt, but Krasinski has it, and the Dodgers win. No, no, it's not over. Krasinski has dropped the ball. Umpire Gorman has reversed his decision. Richardson is safe at second base. Elston Howard is on first, and the Yankees are still very much alive. A hit now, and anything can happen. If he's shaken by the mishap, Kopax doesn't show it. He jams Hector Lopez with his first pitch, and Lopez hits a slow bouncer toward short. Wills comes dancing in, takes it on a big hop, and without breaking stride, throws to first base. The Dodgers win 2-1 and sweep the series in four strikes. Paul Bedlam breaks loose on the field as the jubilant Dodgers try to reach Kopach. He started the season in the opener and then also was there to finish it. Ford held a brilliant two-hitter in the finale, but superb overall pitching of the Dodgers dominated the classes. Never before in all their wonderful years had the Yankees lost four in a row in a World Series. For the Dodgers, therefore, it was a glorious and dramatic triumph, unsurpassed in World Series history. 
And look, I, I couldn't do the history of Dodger Stadium without give, giving you at least uh, one Vin Scully uh, clip there. Uh, we're going to do a show on Vin Scully. There's a lot of this. I'm just basically covering the stadium, its construction, its history. But a lot of these things, you know, Dodgers, players, and moments, we're going to be giving them their own shows here at Backwards K-Pod. Pope John Paul II. He held Mass in Dodger Stadium on September 16, 1987, during his visit to Los Angeles. The attendance was announced at 63,000 people, which is still the largest crowd ever at Dodger Stadium. After Mass, the Pope blessed the field, and a year later, in 1988, they would upset the highly favored Oakland A's to win the championship. Numerous music acts like Kiss, The Rolling Stones, U2, Michael Jackson, Beyonce, Bruce Springsteen, Bruno Mars, The Bee Gees, David Bowie, among others. They, they've all performed there. It's also uh, the next to the last concert venue that the Beatles ever played in. The Harlem Globetrotters have performed there. There have been car races, boxing matches, soccer games, as well as the National Hockey League, first ever outdoor game held in California, featuring the LA Kings versus the Anaheim Ducks. And that was on January 25th, 1914. Dodger Stadium has been used as a uh, movie TV setting more than any other stadium in the world. She's been featured in movies like Star Trek, The Sandlot, The Naked Gun, The Fast and the Furious, Rocket Man, uh, Superman Returns, and he stops a plane from crashing into the stadium, just to name a few. The Dodgers have set the bar in attendance at Dodgers Stadium since moving to L.A. in 1958. The Dodgers have led the attendance in 37 of those seasons, including the best attendance in all of baseball, 31 of those 37 years. The Dodgers' single-season high came in 2013 when they drew over 3.9 million fans into Blue Heaven. The largest crowd to ever witness a game there was April 13, 2009, when they played their hated rival Giants on opening day in front of 57,097 fans. It holds 60,000 seats, by far the most in Major League Baseball. In 2005, the Dodgers were listed by Guinness Book of World Records as having the highest cumulative attendance for a baseball franchise in the history of the game, going back to 1901. Over 184 million people have attended a Dodgers game, and over 176 million people have witnessed a Dodgers game at Chavez Ravine. Oh, and like Tony, Tony, Tony said... It never rains in Southern California. Since Blue Heaven opened, there have been a total of 17 rainouts in the stadium history. The last one occurred April 17th, 17th, 2000 versus the Astros. The Dodgers have played 1,756 games since then at Dodger Stadium without a rainout, which is still an all-time record for the club. The stadium hosts the Midsummer Classic in 1980, and it will be hosting again in a few weeks here in 2022. And before I roll this fatty up and bounce, I, I, I told you I want to talk about the traffic. And again, I've never been to California in my life, but I hear the traffic, especially in L.A. and around Dodger Stadium, I heard it's dreadful. Like, 
make you want to go all Michael Douglas on falling down dreadful. So the snake did a little research for you Dodger freaks out there. And uh, there are some of the things that I, that I learned. Now, I could be right. I could be wrong. You can message me at diamondsbackwardskpod uh, at gmail.com. Let me know what you think. But this is what I heard, okay? First of all, the reason why Dodger fans uh, don't sometimes get there by the third inning is because the traffic sucks. And the, the reason why they leave in the seventh is because by then the, the traffic swallows. So here is what I learned. Now, first thing first, avoid gate A at all costs. Remember, A is for avoid. Try to get to Dodger Stadium as early as you can, but trust me, avoid gate A. It's ill-situated, and it gets hammered by traffic. Also, have a plan and a Google Maps at the ready before you leave to go there. You're going to need to know where your seats are because, as I explained to you, the parking lot is on certain levels, uh, you know, of wherever wherever your seats are. Uh, so, you want to get the lot closest to your seats, unless it's gate A. And if you're a Dodger Stadium virgin, you're going to need Google Maps to navigate through the networks of gates and parking. From my research there, appears to be good gates as well as bad gates at Chavez Ravine. Gate D, or the Academy Gate, it seems to be the best gate to park in. It gives you the easiest entrance and exits. Now, you may have to navigate your way through some neighborhoods, but it's all worthwhile as gate D is considered an almost hidden gem. D, as in Dodgers. That's the best gate if you're going to go to the ballpark. The next best gate is gate C. It has several lanes to get in and out of the ballpark. And this is, to my understanding, clearly the third best option if you're coming off the... Oh, no. Actually, this is the best option if you're coming off the 5 freeway. There is also some uh, backdoor options to get to Gate C off of Academy Road. And it also offers the flattest surfaces to walk without climbing. You know, for old guys like me who ain't for all that goddamn walking anymore. The third best gate is Gate E. It's the easiest gate to get into from the 110 freeway. But, look, don't let that easy access fool you, baby. Get out of gate A is torture. Unless you leave in the fourth inning. If you have upper tank seats, this will be the easiest walk to your section from your car. But... Don't say that the snake didn't warn you. You're going to be sitting there in the car for a minute. You're going to be cussing people out, trying to get out of the parking lot. It's kind of like those uh, old Roach Motel ads. It's, it's real easy to get in, but, you know, once you're in, it's real hard to get out. You know, unless you leave in the third inning. Next, Gate B, which stands for uh, Be Wary of This Bullshit. I was told to treat this gate like... <laughs> the San Diego Padres treat world championships. Stay as far, far away as possible. <laughs> I was literally told that. And while the faces of Dodger Stadium continues to change throughout the generations, as do the fans of Dodger Stadium, 
uh, you know, in a 300-acre facility there nestled in the hills of L.A., it, it still remains this marvel of engineering and an absolute jewel of Major League Baseball. So I think I'm going to end it there, folks. What an amazing ballpark. And it's hard to believe that she is the, you know, third oldest stadium in Major League Baseball because she just gets sexier and sexier with age. The Dodgers in the last decade have pumped hundreds of million dollars into her. And you can look it up and see all the major upgrades they're continuing to do. Uh, Just last week, they cut the ribbon on a beautiful Sandy Koufax statue outside Centerfield Plaza. So, yeah, Uh, Dodger Stadium. Wow. Man, that's just fascinating stuff. I learned so much. I want to thank you for sharing the platform, allowing me into your podcast machine to present it to you. Don't forget to uh, like, share, subscribe, follow if you haven't already. I'm all over the web, easy to find. DiamondSnakeJake.podbean.com. And you want to share or listen to the vaults of expanding archives available on all podcast platforms. And I implore you to check out more about Dodger Stadium. It's got a complex history. There are plenty of books out there. And the Dodger Nation channel is chock full of info on all things Dodgers, including the stadium. I never got the guy's name on there, but uh, who was the host, but it's called Dodger Nation on YouTube, and that guy really knows his stuff. Spread the good word about your good brother Jake the Snake Robinson and Backwards K-Pod as the train rolls on. Next city, next topic. So, let's see. My calendar here. Next week, we go to Savannah, Georgia, and we talk about those wacky, talented ballplayers, the Savannah Bananas. But hey, that's another story for another pod here at Backwards K-Pod where we collect ballplayers and their stories. Parents, if you see your kid sitting on the couch looking bored as AF, please take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank you all for coming out. God bless and win the day.